Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as almost always, Revenue Cat CEO, Jacob Biding. Our guest today is Matt Rongi, co-founder and CEO of AstroPad. Having worked at Apple, Garmin, and founded several companies of his own, Matt is an experienced engineer and entrepreneur with a passion for building creative tools. On the podcast, we talk with Matt about how not to screw up switching your app to subscriptions, why offering lifetime subscriptions might not be a great option, and what it's like when Apple Sherlock's your product. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've been looking forward to chatting with you. You've got a lot of fun stories to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, no, it'll be uh, good to get into. All right, well, I, I wanted to kick off just uh, um, having a founder on, can't, can't miss the opportunity to hear the, uh, the founding story. So you were at, at Garmin for a while and then kind of took a, a break from that and launched Astropad. So tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, to go back even a little earlier, uh, I think it was about 2006, I was an intern at Apple. I was an intern there two summers, actually. Um, But I bring this up because I met my co-founder, Giovanni, at uh, at Apple. Um, So we went different paths for a while. Um, He went to Apple full-time for, I don't know, five years or so. And I did other things. I worked at a startup. And then eventually I joined Garmin. And Garmin, Garmin was a lot of fun. That was uh, we worked on aviation apps, and especially, oh really, you worked yes. on the. Uh, this is in my wheelhouse. Ah, okay. Garmin Pilot, right? Is yeah, I was or... the first engineer on on Garmin Pilot. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah, the, the you guys had maps right before ForeFlight did. I think. Yep. You had the vectorized maps very early that were awesome. Uh, it was like the one like switching <laughs> incentive. So anyway, inside Pilot Baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and that was tons of fun because I didn't know anything about aviation going into it. You know, they brought me in to work on the the iPad app and they really wanted to compete with ForeFlight. So we were kind of neck and neck with ForeFlight for a long time. Um, ForeFlight in general kicked Garmin Pilot's butt, but it was fun. It was fun. uh, And just to learn a ton about aviation, you know, we do stuff like get to fly around like the uh oh nice yeah so we'd be like all right we've got new approach plate feature let's go test it and we'd get in a little little plane in a past life i made software that connected garmin pilot and foreflight to um flight simulator so i probably would have like made your job less no way Okay. Yeah, okay. FSX flight. That was like a <laughs> it's weird uh, connection, but yeah, yeah, that was like a Windows app I made like six or seven years. I don't know even when. I was like 2012 or something like this, but uh, it was like my side gig for a while. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really funny. I had no idea. I probably saw that somewhere along the lines and didn't know it was you because I would see yeah, different things sure. hooked up to ForeFlight. And yeah, and that was, that, was, uh, that was really cool. I loved working in the aviation space. Just super interesting. Just all this stuff I didn't know and working on the mapping. Uh, the mapping was a lot of fun and pretty hard, actually. Pretty hard to get, no, get I, that I, to work well. <laughs> yeah, and it has to be... I mean, talk about constraints on iOS. It really pushes like... You know, iOS is designed for consumers, right? So yep. like apps will get some randomly. Like notifications are an issue. Like there's like lots of stuff that make it 
a difficult operating system for like a hardened environment, like a cockpit. Uh, and you have to engineer around all that stuff and it's taken a number of years. So like, yeah, I can imagine like the challenges. Oh, absolutely. And this was, we started on the iPad too. Oh, oh wow. Even more of a challenge, right? Which I think had like 16 kilobytes of RAM or something. <laughs> it was it was terrible. Oh, and actually another another crossover here. This was my first introduction to in-app purchase subscriptions as well. Because I I was oh, the one that built go, the yeah. subscription infrastructure for oh, uh, wow. Garmin Pilot. So so we're really crossing over now. <laughs> but uh but yeah, that was that was tons of fun. Did that for a while, but ultimately kind of got frustrated being in the big slow company and watching like Four Flight just like they were just crushing it. They were doing they were just doing amazing. And um I mean, I'm still really proud of the work we did too, don't get me wrong. There's a contingent in the pilot community of Garmin fans. Like it is it is not a it is not a zero use app. Like there are people that just prefer it and it's, I still see it in a lot of places. So. Well, and yeah, what we eventually did is we built in a bunch of, um, I can't remember the the name of the devices right now. It's been too long, but the um, handheld GPS units they had for the cockpit mm-hmm. that had mapping functionality in it. We eventually ported that over and that was quite tricky because it runs on its own OS. Garmin has their own OS they actually use. Yeah. So it was a whole, like, how do we host this thing within an iOS app? It was, it was, so we eventually pulled it off and were able to add the full mapping, which was super cool. You know, and I'd always been entrepreneurial in, in nature too. I mean, I had been involved in the shareware scene early on on the Mac in like the 90s and early 2000s. It was just kind of my, my thing. And I toyed around with lots of different ideas over the years, side projects that I would, I would charge for. So I knew I really wanted to go that direction. So I ended up leaving Garmin and ended up doing consulting. And the consulting I did was actually email apps on iOS because I did a um, I, I did this open source framework, MailCore, that made it easy to do IMAP and SMTP. I originally wrote it for the Mac, but I got like no interest because who wanted to write a email client for the Mac in Objective-C before the iPhone, like nobody. But all of a sudden the iPhone was on the scene and people were like, oh, it'd be great to write an email client. And um, so I got involved with that and helped clients build email apps for a while. Um, but eventually I ended up getting more work than I could um, than I could handle. And I saw that Giovanni had left Apple, who I knew from years before. And I, and I really needed somebody that I knew I could bring in and really count on to get this work done. Cause email apps are, are pretty tough too to do them. Yeah. And, um, he was like, yeah, sure. So we ended up working together and we're like, Oh, this is great. So we set up a new company, but we knew that we didn't want to do a consulting long-term. Like it just wasn't, we weren't great at it. It was paying the bills. It was fine. And so we were looking for a product idea and what originally inspired it was, uh, with Astropad, for those that don't know what Astropad, we have Astropad Studio, which what it does is it allows you to use the iPad as a drawing tablet, like a high-end Wacom Cintiq for your computer. And uh, it was inspired by the Surface, the Microsoft Surface. And they Microsoft had ads with like the Surface with full Photoshop on it and a pen. And we're like, that's super cool, but we don't want to use Windows. We don't want to get a Surface. Like, why can't I do this with my iPad? And so that's what that's what started um, Astropad. So we, we consulted to keep the lights on and then um, worked on Astropad in the remaining time we had. Uh, and it, it, was, it was pretty tough, almost two years to build it, um, which was way longer, <laughs> I think, than any of us anticipated. But uh, we launched it. It started to take off. We stopped consulting and... Fast forward five years and six years now, and that brings us to today. What was the original business model? Did you was it paid up front when you first launched? 
Yeah, it was paid up front. And interestingly, early, early on, we, um, and this can even get into the subscription stuff too, why we eventually went to subscriptions. Uh, we charged on the Mac side, actually, because what's unique about Astropad and actually our other product, Luna Display as well, is it has an app on both the iPad. There's two apps. There's like, in the case of Astropad, there's there's one on the iPad, one on the Mac. So we actually made the iPad app free and we charged for the Mac app. And that way we thought, oh, we can charge, justify a much bigger price because people are used to paying more for Mac apps. Sort of kind of didn't work. Um, we actually ended up switching to the App Store and made the Mac app free and that worked way better. And we were upfront paying. Interesting. Right? What was the, what was the signal? Yeah. Cause I think that, that the original line of thinking tracks, right? Yep. You're like, oh, people are paying hundreds a year for Photoshop. Like yep. here's a plugin for Photoshop or not, you know, whatever, however they're thinking about it, right? Here's an, here's a value add for this like core thing I do. And it's on my Mac and it's professional. You're going to get more than the like two ninety nine exactly. download on the app store. That seems to make sense. So what, what did you see that didn't materialize? Well, it was too. So we were charging, I believe, $50 on the Mac app side. We talked to other people in like the indie scene, other founders as well. And we had had a really explosive launch. Like that still today, that was one of our biggest launches of all time. It just got covered all over the place because it was a really new, pretty innovative use of the iPad. And so people loved it. What year is like 2016, something like this? Um, 2015. Okay. Yeah. And we made a big stance about like, too, like, let's use the iPad for professional work. Because so much the iPad then was like yeah. games and stuff. And we're like, this is a super cool yeah, device. It's not what it is today. No. Right? Yeah. And and we were like, all right, let's, let's, yeah, this is way early on before the iPad Pro, before Apple really shifted more heavily into more prosumer workflows on it, um, really started pushing it more. And so that was pretty novel and it, it got tons of traction. And we had tons of downloads of our free trial, but we just didn't have that many conversions to pay it. And we talked to other people like, what's up with our conversion rate, da, 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 da. And it was just like, something's out of whack. Were you guys taking credit cards? Was it through the credit Mac cards? App? Yeah. It's credit cards. Like, and then were you doing like a, a credit card upfront free trial or was it? Yeah. Upfront free trial. Okay. So you would put the credit card in and then it would convert after X days or something. Oh like no, this? no. You would, um, it was more like the traditional, like old school, like shareware model. Like, right. Okay. So you get 14 days of use and then it basically shuts off unless you pay. Yeah. Pay. Got it. Got it. Got it. And I think it was like 14 days or so that we had, and it just didn't convert to the dollar amount we expected. Um, so we had insane amounts of traffic, but we weren't generating the money we expected. And at this point, we had quit consulting. We had fired our clients. We were like, we're going all in on this. And so we had to make it work. It was partly out of desperation that we tried the App Store because we're like, this isn't sustainable at its current rate. We need to make some changes. And so let's try it. What, what the heck? Why not? And so we did an upfront payment. I think it was $30 initially on the app store and revenue went way up. It just worked way better. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the the case, like, oh, I want a, a way to use my iPad with my computer, right? I'm going to start probably on my iPad. Yeah. It seems like an iPad problem, not a Mac problem. And then also just like, it's just easier to buy software it's on, just the, easier. on the app store. <laughs> like it just works better. It's I'm still a big fan of the app store. Like it, it, it's funny how the Mac app store never feels like 
it's quite the same thing. It doesn't feel as smooth or, or no. as good because like the the still the way of buying software, it, this is the friction is so low. The experience is so ingrained in everybody. Like you just know how to buy software on the app store, um, which maybe that's just enough. That's might be 90% of what made the difference. It's just the, the buying and commercial experience is better. That's what I believe. I believe just the frictionless buying experience. And also the other thing too, is like there was no longer a trial. It was paid up front. So if you had any curiosity at all, like- you had to pay. Yeah. And at that price point, like if it's something like you might use professionally, you might take a, ri- a risk. Yeah. Like you take a $30 or whatever. We didn't initially do that because we didn't think a price like that would be sustainable on the app store. But again, we were kind of like, we got to make something work. So let's try stuff. I mean, there's there's big benefits. I mean, when people think about pricing, it's, it's a curve, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can raise your prices you're going to have fewer users. Like that's always, almost always true unless you're just really lucky and have an elastic product. But most most products are elastic in some sense. And so there's big benefits to that though because then you have less support. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, fewer users, less support. Unless you're hoping for some viral distribution mechanism, like there can be big benefits to pricing high initially. Um, and then you can always, you can always work your way down. Like it's, it's another piece of advice. Like you're never going to hurt yourself starting high because you can always like back it down and and nobody's going to be too mad at you. I totally agree with that. And the other thing to that factors in with these decisions is we're a bootstrap company. We've never taken outside investment. So that cash flow up front is really important for us as well to grow yeah. to grow the business. So we might prioritize it more than um, a company that has a large investment round and just wants, you know, pure user numbers early on, right? Like it's just a different, we're optimizing for a different thing. Yeah, for sure. And it's changed too on the, even on the venture side, even on the funded side, yeah, like has every, revenue is, every, yeah, I mean, every revenue is everything now, like, uh, which is great. You know, five, five to 10 years ago, if you were starting a venture, I mean, I played with half starting a venture backed company in like 20, 2008. And like, we were like explicitly said, like, do not worry, do not try to get revenue. <laughs> right. Uh, which might've been the right advice for the, that environment. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just different. It's all about revenue now. It's the best way for people to show, you know, it's the best way to tangibly express value in a product. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, when did the switch to subscriptions happen? I guess like when, when, what was that journey like from, from this point of paid up front? Uh, to a subscription model. Yeah, so that took about two years. So in 2017, we launched Astropad Studio. So originally at the time, it was just Astropad, and we introduced a new version that was like the professional edition, Astropad Studio. And I can talk about this more too in just a minute. This was very key to our switch to subscriptions because the other thing about us doing subscriptions at the time is we were very new on the scene as well to doing doing subscriptions. There wasn't a lot of... There were services doing it, but... Uh, if I remember correctly, even before that, the App Store rule, the App Store guidelines didn't even necessarily allow any kind of app. And there was kind of an exception in there for like prosumer type apps, and we were hoping to use that. Um, and so this is really before Apple had the big push on subscriptions and they opened everything up. So it was very, very different time. There's not a lot of information out there. Um, we're a bootstrap company, really concerned about blowing up our existing cash flow. So that's why we introduced a second edition of Astropad, Astropad Studio. Yeah, that was subscription. And oh, okay. Yeah, so then we still kept this, the the current one going. So if you wanted like the light version, you could grab that on the App Store as a one-time purchase. But if you wanted all of our advanced features, that was an Astropad Studio. And you got to subscribe to that. And you know, we had the free trial and everything. And really we made the we made the push 
you know, because we knew that it's still a pretty niche market and we knew that we had to, two things, we had to find a way to have some kind of recurring revenue and like paid upgrades, not an option really on the mm-hmm. app store. So that was one thing. We needed a way to charge more from our current customers over time. And yeah. we also needed a way to push up the price point. We knew that at about $30 up front, we felt we were at about the ceiling we could push. But for yeah. a really professional tool, we felt that that was way too cheap. Just think of it in terms of value capture, right? Yeah. Like you should be able to capture some of the value you're generating. And if and if you sell, if you just don't know, you sell 30 bucks a pop, there's some users that probably get no value out of it very yep. little. They try it, they use it, they don't use it, whatever. And then you have some users who becomes part of their core workflow. They're yep. doing, you know, they're making six figures in consulting on design or whatever every year. And you're not, you're, you got $30 and that's it right? yep. <laughs> forever. Um, and so subscriptions without being able to like charge them per click or something like this, you have a better proxy to value. Cause if somebody's continuing to use it, they're continuing to pay for it and you're continuing to capture some of that value. And and then, you know, going back to the sustainability argument, I've, well, I've made, I've <laughs> will continue to make this argument until the, till the day I die, but like, you just see how it makes so much more sense. Like you are now incentivized to keep working on this. You don't have to do weird things where you're like revving every year and like all this like effort, you can just like focus and really like talk to those users and, and really serve them and, and continue to enrich the product. Um, so what was the operational head overhead of having to, I always, I always worry about that when you're trying to like maintain two binaries, it's a nightmare in my experience or not. I don't know. It can be a real pain. Yeah. And still to this day, we still do maintain two and it's a total pain. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. Like I think you could pull it off more today, not doing that. But again, this was very early, so much so that the App Store team reached out to us and they're like, oh, we want to feature you just because we want to start pushing subscription stuff more. And like, you're one of the first in this category to do it. And, and we did. We get a fee. It didn't amount to much. So there, there wasn't a lot of examples to go by. Um, so we were very, very, very careful. We were very concerned about, um, about it. And, uh, you know, the big thing too was sustainability, really those two points, sustainability. Another thing is driving up the price point because with a subscription, you can do a free trial. So people are more apt to pay. Like we just could never find a good way to do like a more traditional in-app purchase with it. So you could do a free trial and people are willing to pay more for an annual, or you can break it out into monthly amounts or whatever increment you want to make it seem much more digestible. So that's a way you can charge $100 for an iOS app is through subscriptions. You're not going to do that through upfront payments. It's just not going to, it's not going to happen. Especially with the risk. Like you're asking the consumer to bear an incredible, even at 20 or $30, yeah. you're asking a consumer to bear an incredible amount of risk. You know, so many apps I download and try and like, they're all bad. Some of them are bad. Maybe about half are yeah. bad. <laughs> like there's a lot of bad apps out there. I'm just kidding. I love all of the apps. They're all great. Uh, but there's a lot that don't, that aren't the best. And then, uh, and then the other half is like, sometimes you don't know if it's going to fit your use case. It's happened to me this weekend. I was doing some CAD thing. I tried Shapeways, which I think it's called Shapeways or Shaper 3. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They came out at about the same time as us too, with uh, subscriptions. There were another one. They were very early. Uh, I remember um, it's an amazing app. I was bl- blown away by it. But I, <laughs> I thought I needed a like a pro export feature, and so I plunked. I was like two hundred bucks for the pro thing to be able to export a certain file format, and I found out later I didn't need it. Right, mm-hmm. but I was able to back out. I was able to say like, oh, actually. I, mm-hmm. d- I didn't feel bad. I wasn't like ripping. I would have paid like if I was going to mm-hmm. use it, but I was like, oh, this actually doesn't fit my use case. So I was able to walk mm-hmm. away from a $200 purchase having known actually evaluated it. Right. And that's an incredible amount of de-risking for a consumer. 
Yeah, you have this great blog post that you've published about how not to screw up <laughs> the, yeah, the anti yeah. like the avoiding the negative yeah. case. So like what's your playbook or how did you, how did you navigate it that, that you think went well? Yeah, so this is really when I wrote this, this was really after seeing some some apps, some popular apps just totally bombing the switch. And I've seen this not even just one particular app. I've seen multiple like popular apps do this where they just totally bomb the switch subscription. And so this is really just drawing on our experience making the switch and it went fairly well uh, for us. I mean, still we had angry customers. You're always going to have angry customers, but we kept it to a fairly reasonable amount. Even creating a new binary because that new binary was all like subscription from the beginning, right? That's right. But there were still people that were like, wait, I paid for this other app and you made a new app. <laughs> yep. They're like, oh, you should add those features back to the yeah, one I paid course. for. And we're like, well, sorry. <laughs> so that's just one. That's just your opinion, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it, I mean, yeah. And that it was like, yeah, these are a lot of great features. But do you realize it took like two years to develop a lot of these? Like this is like some of these are really, really quite sophisticated and we've got to fund the team. It's still hard to express the cost of software development. I know. <laughs> to people. Like, I know. I know. Well, that's. That's interesting because what's this is a whole other tangent we could get into. Um, I won't right now, but we also sell a hardware product too. And the difference between purchasing a hardware product and software is fascinating. Mm. Fascinating. Uh, you can get people to pay way more for hardware. I'll say that. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so much about perceived. Like, I still think as humans, we haven't, we maybe never will have an appropriate perceived value for software. Uh, and the thing is, is our hardware, most of the development cost for our hardware was actually in the software. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so um, when we were switching to uh, subscriptions, you know, and the, the first thing is just being super, super extra generous with existing customers. And we were, but I wish we were actually even more generous. <laughs> so we gave existing customers, they, um, I forgot even how we did it exactly. Did we email them? But anyway, they got a, um, they got like an access code that gave them three months free. Like no credit card required. Like they got the best, like you get three months totally free, no credit card, no, just like try it out and and see what you think. I wish we'd done even longer actually with that. Doesn't cost you a whole lot probably. It's just deferred revenue if anything. Yeah. And the reality is most of the revenue too for our subscription came from new customers uh, as well in our, in our case. And so... Like forcing our existing customers to switch over to subscription wouldn't have worked very well. Timelines wise, how many years after launching the original version? Was this was the, two. Two years. This was two years after. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not nothing. But if you think about it, you know, now that's we're how far from that original date? Five or six years? Exactly. Right. So like you're talking about now at this point, one third uh, or whatever of your user yeah. life cycle or of like your accumulated user, assuming you have linear like user addition, but yep. likely you haven't. But then also, you know, if you think about it in terms of decades, <laughs> right? Like <Yep. laughs> there's really like the, the, the brand cost of you like trying to wring stuff out exactly. of those users really doesn't exactly. get out. Right. It may, you might have cash flow reasons and stuff, but I think even if you try to ring it out, it often doesn't work. Well, yeah, and and that's exactly why is because you've built such like brand loyalty and loyalty with your existing customers. You're going to flush that all down the toilet in about two seconds once you try to force them over to a subscription. And they're like your advocates out there. They're like, they're out there telling people about your product. We had a lot of people that were really excited about Astropad. We didn't want to burn that. We really, really yeah. didn't want to burn that. And so that's why I wish we were even more generous, honestly. Yeah. I wish we were more. And we just, for the subscription, it was forward looking. 
It was like, you know what? These existing customers got a really, really sweet deal and that's fine. They decided to come on early with us. They're rewarded for that. Great. We're, we're forward looking. So the way that we did want to convert customers to be existing customers as new subscribers is by making it so good, the yeah. new subscription offering that they couldn't resist. So not forcing them. It was the carrot, not the stick. It was like, okay, we've got these amazing new features we spent two years developing. And if you want them, you know, you are gonna you are gonna have to subscribe. And that's really what I where I think a lot of popular apps have made a mistake where they're just like, everybody, you're all switching over. If you want to continue using you go to subscription. Right? They're like, yeah, and it's like, well, away. Yeah, don't take a lot of the stuff they've been using and all of a sudden put it behind subscription. You're going to really make people angry doing that. Instead, develop something totally new that's super exciting that people want and that they're like, oh, yeah, heck yeah, I'm going to subscribe. Like, I've I've had a great relationship with this company. They've built a great product. I want this feature. Okay, then then they, they feel like it's their choice. It is their choice then yeah. to subscribe. You're not, you're not forcing them. And there's a whole different psychology around it at that point. I'm curious, did you run into it? And David, you might know better, but uh, did Apple give you any guff about the codes? Because like sometimes they get weird when you're unlocking stuff not through the App Store. Yeah, they didn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of figured I was, it, was a, it was a softball, but I wanted to make the point that like, there are some times when if it's not in your core flow and like it's a way to like be good to users, yeah. like Apple's not going to know and they're probably not going to care. And if they find out, yeah. most likely the worst case scenario is you got to take it out. Well, and, and that would have been fine too because it was just a one-time thing for us. Yeah. We were just doing it one time for existing customers. I'd tell people like don't try, don't mess with Apple. Like it's just not worth it for you. Yeah. But there are some cases like this where like, yeah, hey, nobody's going to notice and it's going to look the other way. And like, this is a this is a good chance to bend the rules. And when it's good for customers, I think you have a much stronger argument with Apple too. Like In this kind of case, like... Assuming you can get your case heard, right? Well, but. <laughs> true. But the thing they, they clamp down more on is the like referral flow and things where you're where you're offering incentives and offering a different price to people coming in for new revenue. And then I, I think they were especially sensitive around kind of manipulating the app store of like, you can flood a bunch of new users in with incentivized downloads and stuff like that. So, but this kind of use case, I think they, they'd be happy to look the other way. Follows the spirit of the app store the guidelines. Yeah. But I did want to ask, so so you were paid up front and then you switched to subscriptions. What are your thoughts on lifetime, lifetime <laughs> subscriptions? Yeah, yeah. So this is interesting. And I actually wanted to talk about this because I think, David, I've seen you tweet before that you're not a big fan of Lifetime, I, I believe. I've gone back and forth. So maybe we can have the debate here. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your take. So one, one caveat up front, we do not have a lifetime plan. So despite what I'm about to say, we do not have a lifetime plan. So take, take that as it is. But, um, you know, now being a number of years into this and seeing how high churn can be for kind of like B2C type uh, subscriptions, it started to make me wonder. Um, and actually what made me think about it as well is our, um, our Luna hardware we sell. It allows you to use the iPad, another Mac as a second display. We now support PC as well. And that's a hardware product, but we charge a very high upfront price for it. And it's interesting that I feel like our two products almost compute out to the same lifetime value, even though one is a subscription and the other is a one-time hardware purchase. And so that kind of opened my eyes to like, well, maybe because I was very strongly against lifetime, like early on, like a lot of people brought it up in the initial switch, like, oh, you should add a lifetime or a perpetual or whatever you want to call it. And I was like, no, I don't like that. I don't like that. 
But then seeing that, you know, in an annual subscription, you can have 50% churn, that is really significant. And if you calculate it out, yeah, your lifetime value of of a subscriber, you know, like 50% churn, I believe that would be about two, two years uh, would be so two times your subscription. So if you're charging, yeah, double your subscription, that's your essentially your lifetime value then. So if you have a really high upfront price, is a lifetime thing really that bad of an idea? That's kind of where I'm at. Here are the two things. I don't have the data to prove it yet. Actually, um, we have a data scientist coming on soon. And so I actually, well, it's probably not something we could definitively answer with our data. Ask the question, David. I can give you my, I can give you my, I've seen some data, okay, like yeah, hot yeah. take. So my theory on this now, as I've seen so much, talked to so many of our customers at Revenue Cat, you know, thought about it with my own apps and everything else, is that the, the people who are going to be willing to pay that 60, 80, 100, $200 lifetime are the ones who are actually going to use your product for years and years and years and years. So when you take your when you take your average mm. churn rate and say my average retention is two years, and so I'm going to charge two x my subscription. What you're not accounting for is that it's actually your best users who are going to be the ones paying lifetime. And so the average retention of that lifetime uh, user is actually going to be way longer. And then the other thing I've been thinking more and more about is that we really are so early. So we don't, like you say, the average user turns out at two years. What you don't even really know yet is how long are your long-term users going to stick around? And when you think about how early we are in subscriptions, there may be subscription apps that, that have users for 20 25 years, you know, like a Calm or something like that, where, you know, they subscribed in 2017 or whenever Calm first introduced their subscription, 2015, 16, whenever it was. And then like, it's just a part of their everyday life and and they just stay subscribed literally for decades. Their lifetime value has a very literal <laughs> meaning. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we don't know, right? And, you know, are our glasses going to like change this up? What's going to happen in the future? And are we going to be able to transition some of our use cases to whatever the next kind of technology is? But at the end of the day, like we're just starting to see um, some of these cohorts that are that are hitting five, six years of continuous subscription. Yeah. Like I've been subscribed to Amazon Prime for you know, a decade, I think now I've been subscribed to Netflix for six or eight years on the video product. And I had a DVD subscription for, for a couple of years and then canceled that and eventually got it back on. And so I think we're just so early in understanding like how long these things are going to go that if you're going to, if you're going to pick off some of your best, highest intent users and charge them 200 bucks, you're actually probably significantly shortchanging your true lifetime value. I'm going to I'm going to interject an uneducated take which is basically what I do on this podcast but uh two points is one I've never considered that David which is interesting like the lifetime are you funneling away people that have a higher actually higher lifetime value and limiting it because like I, I really do believe most consumers are pretty rational. So they wouldn't be asking for the lifetime value if they didn't think that they were getting a good deal, right? right? So you probably are sacrificing some stuff, but that might be okay because the flip side, kind of Matt, going back to what you're talking about, is it's like cash flow can really be important, right? Booking that money like right up front can really mean the difference between, okay, I can hire the next dev and like we can kind of ramp what we're doing as opposed to an annuity, which is essentially like an, an annual subscription where you're just getting that money like over time. And yeah, it's going to churn out a 
little bit uh, or it's going to turn out quite a bit in this first couple of years, especially in the like prosumer, you're probably a little bit better off, but still like people just move on and like stop using tools and even, even consumer and prosumer stuff. But it is interesting how you see, I have seen this in data before multiple times when you try to look at LTV that like, it always seems like the lifetime value finds a level. Like it finds a level like between like we've, we've looked at this in like conversion, like full conversion funnel modeling between different products. Like it almost doesn't matter what path and packaging somebody goes down. The LTV often ends up roughly the same. Now that's accepting what David's point, which is like this very, very long-term version of people being here from, because in LTV modeling, we don't tend to look past like two years. So what we need to do with our data is look back at some of these apps that have had subscriptions for a very long time and start to understand new revenue versus old revenue and look at some of those early cohorts and look at the actual LTVs of those early cohorts as some of them mature into five, six, seven years of subscriptions. That's the analysis we can do, Jacob, that I think would be fascinating. Yeah. The the problem is, is they tend to be really small (laughs) because they do decay quite a bit. So like you end up with these probably really sturdy stacked cohorts, but they're very, they tend to be very small. I still at this stage tend to be very small in comparison to like the hundred people that signed up last month. Right. There's a lot of dynamics going on. And because of the, honestly, just because of, yeah, like the age, we've only been doing this for five or six years. Like we're still pretty early in understanding how this is going to play out. Yeah. And, and Dave, that's probably the best argument I've ever heard. Like you might have you might have convinced me now to go the other way. Actually, I would get some data first, Matt, because yeah. I think it's, it's one of these arguments that sounds and makes sense, but then like you know when you actually yeah. look at the data, it might not actually pencil out. I mean, it's like what we were talking about early with like, oh, we're charging on the Mac, the Mac side for for Astroped. Oh, that makes tons of sense, like logically, and then like the data. Yeah, just sometimes it's just one of these things where we're not super good at reasoning about without seeing it like uh, with an actual model. Yeah, and then th- there's other reasons for for a lifetime too. I mean. Uh, I still have lifetimes in both of my apps. And I think if you if you have ongoing costs like my weather app, I am going to pull it from my weather app. But it is a nice like price anchoring, right? Like you have a $60, $80 lifetime and then you have a you know $15 annual subscription or something or a you know whatever, whatever those numbers look like. The price anchoring is good. And then it is the off-ramp for the people who are just like, yeah, I'm never going to do a subscription. And so maybe, maybe the yeah, I'm never going to do a subscription even helps balance the losing your kind of highest intent users because they're they're not actually paying more because they see they, they perceive more value kind of to Jacob's point but they're actually paying more because they just don't want a subscription so yeah there's a lot of factors I mean that's an interesting it's mixed that cohort isn't pure right that cohort isn't yeah. necessarily like oh I just love this app and I'm gonna use it the rest of my life right like it's yeah. it's there's different reasons people would go to that price point well and for for us one reason we seriously thought about it early on I mean again we never did it but is we had so many people come to us and say, uh, you know, we hate what Adobe did going to the creative cloud subscription model. We preferred when we did this like giant upfront, you know, we bought the creative suite every two years for a thousand dollars, right? They actually preferred that. And because we were dealing with a lot of creative, they were like asking, asking us for that, for that model. So that's where we, yeah, we hemmed and hawed on, on doing it ultimately didn't, but now yeah, after after a couple of years and seeing, because it's not like a you know what I would expect more with a lot of B two B subscriptions where the cohorts just kind of like stack and you have much lower churn. A business starts using something and it's part of their workflow and they stick with it forever. Where consumer tools stuff changes faster, mm-hmm. 
like the kind of devices and the kind of, you know, yeah, like in, in our case with Astrobed Studio, uh, what what does 10 years from now even look like, right? 15 years. We don't even know. What does the iPad look like in 15 years? Yeah, it might be running Creative Suite on the iPad, right? Like <laughs> Exactly. So it's hard it's harder to like I think I might be biased in that way too, coming from like the the area we work in where we do see things changing yeah. really, really quickly, especially compared to some of these other things you mentioned, David, that are more like content businesses right. to me, like Netflix, yeah. like Calm in a way I would argue is kind of like mm-hmm. a content Absolutely. Uh, business. Peloton, you know, where- It's a podcast player with like a very specific kind of content. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that's a very different than like the tools. Yeah. That's a great point, Matt. Like all of this stuff has to be really be conditioned on your product, the kind of value it delivers, where it lives in the value chain. You know, if you think about like pro users creating content with something and, you know, they're using the the value that they're creating and delivering to somebody else isn't getting created in Astropad. It's part of the process, right? So like mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. about where you sit in that value chain and stuff can can help educate you. And yeah, you might be right. Like there might be, there, you know, with how fast things changing and development of stuff, like you might not be able to rely on that. Like, hey, we're going to stack forever thing. And that's fine. That's just business, right? You just have to understand your market, your positioning, and then, you know, plan around it. And then uh, speaking of things changing, I I did want to get into um, (laughs) uh, Luna Display. So WWDC, uh, what was it? Two years ago, so 2020, Apple gets on stage and says, surprise, you know, you can now stream your display from your Mac to your iPad built into the OS. And of course, that's exactly what Luna Display does as a hardware product. So what was that like uh, sitting there watching WWC? I assume you, you were actually watching live. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It Well, it was actually it was one worse even than that, because part of why we had done Luna Display was to diversify because we felt very vulnerable with Astropad alone. And it turns out Sidecar did what Luna and Astropad do. Wow. So Astropad has way more features and it's and it's been actually at this point, both Luna and Astropad have way more features than Apple's sidecar. But early on, that was really, 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 really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Our stomachs just totally dropped. Like we we felt like we were living a nightmare. I mean, I remember waking up the next morning and I was like, is this real? Like, right. is this really happening? Like, oh crap, it is. I got to deal with this. Like, this is this is awful. Because we had about 15 people in the company at that point too. Oh. Yeah, it's one thing when it's you and your your founder, yeah, exactly. like whatever, you'll figure it out. But when you got all these people, that makes it tough. Yeah. Yeah. And and we weren't totally oblivious to Apple coming into our space. Like it seemed like a natural. And so at the time, we were actually more worried about Touch Max, like supporting mm. Apple Pencil. Um, Because this was the time like the Microsoft Surface uh, Studio came out and that kind of stuff just like made so much sense. We're like, at what point does Apple just add this natively to the Mac and then Astropad doesn't make any sense at all anymore? So our thinking was, is that, well, with Lunar Display, we're adding a second display. So even if there is a Touch Mac, you need second display. So this seems like a, we we never anticipated that they would actually do what we were doing because they were so anti like putting the Mac UI. They kept talking about the Mac UI doesn't belong in the iPad. The Mac UI doesn't belong in the iPad. And we're just like, yeah, it doesn't seem like they're going to do that. Interestingly, we never expected them to disable touch and put it on the iPad, which is what they do um, versus Ours supports full touch. You can do anything you want through the iPad. I've never used the the sidecar thing, uh, but you can't. Yeah. You have to use a pencil, essentially. You can only use pencil. Interesting. Um, but we support full like touch. We can do right click. We can do all sorts of stuff. That feels like a, a design by committee decision. Oh yeah, <laughs> but- yeah. <laughs> 
so we didn't really expect that. And it was, it was brutal. Um, and not only that, but it was free and integrated with the OS. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, it was one thing if it's paid and then we could compete on, on that, but a feature like this, of course, integrated in the OS. And so it was just, just absolutely brutal. I mean, our lunar revenue went down 10 X almost overnight. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It was rough. That's funny because I don't even know how I would use it in Mac OS. <laughs> like, I, I don't follow this stuff as closely as I used to. Good, probably, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, I was say, like, I'm probably, I'm I'd be one of those like 10 that would still be searching it on the App Store. <laughs> and, and so and you've told this story publicly, but Apple had actually uh, purchased a bunch of your unit. Did you even like go to yeah. Cupertino and display it? And, and yes. T- yeah. Tell me that part of the story. Yeah, well, it was just we were we were connected in through um, through Apple had had multiple multiple discussions with us and and felt like they were trying to support us as part of their ecosystem. Little did we know that behind the scenes they were actually making a copy oh, really of what we were doing. Yeah, man, I, I had the same thing happen to me with uh, Launch Center Pro. Uh, had Shortcuts employees like buy our NFC stickers and ask a bunch of questions about how we were doing NFC. And then six months later, boom, Shortcuts at WWC announces yeah. Yeah. NFC support. But then not only we were kind of in a worse position than you in that like Shortcuts has deeper system level access that we can't get access to. So, so they completely uh, obviated our use case, but then actually even did it better because they were able to integrate deeper into the system. I wonder how many other stories there are like this that just don't get told of Apple kind of cozying up and buying a product and asking a lot of questions and then surprise. Yeah, you can be you can be kind of starstruck, right? Like you want to you think like, oh, I'm so special and like, oh, they want to know and like, oh, maybe they're going to buy it. I don't know, something good. Right. Um, and, right. and maybe it's not all I don't think Apple's nef- I don't think they're nefarious. I don't think this is their intent is to like crush indie developers, but they're a big public company that's trying to increase revenue for shareholders, right? They're going to do things that are not incentivized and aligned with with partners only in so much as they like can keep the ecosystem pushing their share value to be really like <laughs> really cynical about it. But uh, I think it's always important. Yeah. You got to remember when you go into these things that like it's not necessarily for your benefit, right? And so <laughs> keep that in mind. Well, and the, the other thing too is this is not unique just to Apple. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is a lot of the big companies in general. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to innovate in those companies, right? So they're better at copying because like you can see something that's already been innovated, which innovation's hard in a big company, it just is. And like, then you can, but you're really good at building and you're really good at like deploying and shipping and launching, right? So it makes sense that, you know, if you, if you asked somebody like, oh, do you want to steal the hard work of some small like indie developer studio <laughs> and like crush their livelihood? They'd be like, no, gosh, no. But they'll do it because it's like how their incentives are aligned, right? It's like they they will get yeah. a bonus if they do, right? Whether or not that that's like moral or correct doesn't really matter. It's just like how the incentives are set up, uh, and that's yeah. It's it's not just Apple. It's going to be any any large company that's significantly larger than you. Big 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 companies. Um, so you know, a lesson to other small small developers out there: be careful yeah. with the big companies when you have meetings with the big companies. But you guys pivoted. You guys, you just went you went hard on Windows, right? We went really hard. We went really hard on Windows. That was our. That was what we. Well, so there was two things we did. One, we initially started adding more features to 
uh, Luna Display in particular, because um, that one got hit the hardest first. So we started to add more features to that. The first thing we added was um, called Mac to Mac mode. Now it's actually more than that. It also supports the PC as well. But at the time, it was called Mac to Mac mode and allowed you to use, especially like an iMac as a secondary display. Oh, so cool. kind of a replacement yeah. for the old school target display mode. I've got so many old laptops sitting around that I would consider doing that with. <laughs> like. Yeah, that's what we do. We do that and you can do it with a PC too. A PC can use a Mac as a display. We're working on adding support for PC to PC so you can use multiple PCs. So they can, yeah, you can use an old computer, old iMac as a display. And that's been surprisingly popular. Really, really popular. I've used tools like that for a long time and they've never been very good, especially the cross-platform ones. Like they're just not well-made. Yes, yeah. There's your advantage. <laughs> Make a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. And and they've been buggy and they'll have often like kernel level drivers that cause weird kind of issues. And that's where we come in with our, our hardware support, where we, we actually plug a device in to enable the display. So you, the hardware just acts as an HDMI device or whatever, or a display yeah, device? Yeah, we have HDMI, we have mini display port and USB-C. Okay. Um, USB-C being our most popular, but you plug that in and our software is able to activate a display. I got it. That's how we, and then we can transport it. You can connect over, if it's another Mac, you can do Thunderbolt, Ethernet, Wi-Fi. If it's an iPad, you can do USB, you can do Wi-Fi. So it's really, really flexible there. And so then we pushed really hard on Windows. That was a huge, huge project for us. Took us another two years to do, but thankfully turned things around for us. And now we're actually back at the level we were before Apple launched Sidecar. Because we were doing great before Sidecar, and then we... Things took a dive and now finally, finally we're back up again doing great. There's some arbitrage here. Like I'm not a huge expert on the Windows ecosystem. I feel like it's big. There are more Windows computers by like, Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if it's an order of magnitude, but it's a lot. Um, it's a lot, a lot. And, and like that was, I was talking about this like flight simulator thing I made. That thing made so much money for me and I did almost nothing just because they're so, <laughs> even in a niche like that, right? Like my, the one Windows app yeah. I made, made me a, a six figures of over years, but like it was like good money. Um, and I barely had to try on it. But I think that's still the software quality on the App Store and the Mac are so much better. So there's like, an arbitrage opportunity here, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can, if you can bring that level of care over Absolutely. to Windows. <laughs> like, and uh, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And you can do it. You can do it. It's not like it's easier to build. I, in my opinion, it's not easier to build high quality apps on um, the Mac than it is on Windows. It's hard on both. It's really hard. Yeah. But if you put in the time, we're finding you can do it on Windows too. The, the APIs are there. So yeah, that, and that's such a great story of, you know, not all Sherlocking stories end uh, with, hey, we differentiated against Apple and are actually doing really well. But I, I think the, the the companies that are able to do that are the ones who who kind of end up coming out of it stronger, where, where now Apple is kind of marketing for you. It's like, hey, there's this amazing feature and then somebody uses it and they're like, oh, this is kind of cool, but I need this or I need that. And then they go looking for a solution and there you are. You know, I kind of see this in the in the weather app space. You know, you would think, you know, and, and with WWC 2021 with iOS 15, Apple, you know, made huge strides with their weather app. But at the end of the day, like there's there's so many um, niche things that people care about with weather and content, you know, weather.com, uh, the weather channel, uh, you know, they have so much content. They have so many other things that they differentiate on that, you know, I doubt uh, Apple's new weather app stole much, if any, you know, market share from them. So, 
So yeah, I mean, how, how have things gone since uh, since the pivot? Are, are you that kind of Sherlocking success story that that Apple's just kind of brought awareness and and businesses better than ever? Yeah, it was a very difficult two years. Yeah, very very difficult two years. We didn't know if we were going to make it out of it, right. to be honest. Um, but now two years later, I mean, I can say, yeah, it is possible to survive and. And to do better than you did actually in the beginning. Uh, it required a lot of hard work. It required us to be scrappy. It required us to pivot. Uh, and, but we were able to do it. Like yeah. and others, others can do it too. So if a big, big company copies you, it's not, it's not the end, right? Like you can pivot your way out of that. It's not easy. It's not going to be fun. Right. But you can do it. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Going out on a high note, uh, it's it's great to hear that, <laughs> yeah. that things are going well. But any uh, anything else you wanted to share? Uh, we're going to drop links to Twitter, to Astropad, uh, and to your blog, which which again, there, there are several good blog posts I actually wanted to talk about we didn't quite get to today. But yeah, anything else you wanted to share as we wrap up? Yeah, definitely check out our company, uh, Astropad dot com. Check it out. Check out Luna and Astropad now with PC support. You can find me on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active. If you want to, I kind of tweet about what's happening in the business, stuff I learned along the way. So uh, M-R-O-N-G-E on Twitter. And uh, check out my website too, where I blog eh, occasionally trying to do it more. M-R-O-N-G-E dot com. Oh, I got to plug this too. I also um, host a podcast, uh, Building Astropad, where I kind of cover behind the scenes of us bootstrapping our uh, software hardware company. Yeah, I, I, I should have included that. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I've listened to a few episodes. It's great. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, I, like, I like that you talk through some of your blog posts as well. That's something I, I think we, we should maybe experiment with here on Subclub is like some of our, the better blog posts that we're doing. It's kind of fun to hear you kind of talk through the, the behind the scenes a little bit. Like you get into it a little bit more in the podcast yeah. than you do on the, on the blog. Uh, so that's a, a great format as well. So yeah, definitely check out Matt's podcast. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, David. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.